please. All and right. The floor uh, is yours. Good morning. I have uh, tormented many of your older brothers and sisters and some of your parents for a long time now, so it's always good back to come back and mess with your people now. Um, I'm the director of something called Haven Ministries. It's based in Colorado, but we go all over the world. Um, we're missionaries, full-time missionaries. We talk to Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Mormons and Scientologists and witches and psychics and everything you can imagine, atheists on the campus. We talk to everybody we can. Um, we get around the world in different places. Sometimes we go to things called the parlor. Hello. There you go. <laughs> All right. um, anyways, if you took an intro to philosophy class, which would put you way ahead of Stephen Hawking and Richard Dawkins and all these famous atheists, um, one of the things you learn about is that about 350 years before Jesus, you have some famous people named Plato and Socrates. And one of the things that they were known for was searching for justice. What the heck is justice? In this town, in Athens, justice means one thing. In Sparta, it literally means the exact opposite thing. But they use the same word, and Plato was trying to figure out how do we make justice universal. Well, a thousand years before Plato ever existed, the Torah, Moses, Moshe, talked about justice pretty dramatically, long before the Greeks ever grabbed onto it. This is something he says in 18, Genesis 18, right near the beginning of the Torah, Shall not the judge of the universe do what is right? So we get our first introduction about who God is in this passage, that God is a God of justice, that he will do what is right. Interesting enough, about the time of Jesus, a little bit afterwards, you have the book of Revelation. John, the apostle, talks about justice as well. This is in Revelation 6, 10 through 11. I saw under the throne those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who live upon the earth? From the beginning of the book to the end of the book, justice is one of the main themes. The reason I'm bringing this up this morning, because our country is being torn to shreds over the issue of justice right now. And most, most disheartening to me is to watch Christians and Christian institutions, seminaries, Bible colleges all over the place, roll over for this new version of justice, which is sometimes called social justice. And social justice warriors, that's, those words have been in the language for a little while now. 
And we start hearing about things like critical theory or cultural theory or critical race theory, which is un basically being taught at the universities for decades now. I was trying to finish my PhD at the University of Denver many years ago, and I got introduced to this thing called cultural theory. My degree was in theology, philosophy, and cultural theory, and people would ask me, what's that cultural theory mean? I said, it's just Marxism. That's all it is, 100% Karl Marx. And so this is a message I did not want to give. I've been giving it all over the churches this summer that I've spoken to because it's just unimaginable to me 20 years ago that this would be all over the church and all over our culture. But I have to talk about it now and where this stuff came from. And what I want to do with you all is to quickly talk about what God says justice is and compare that with the social justice or the critical race theory and stuff like that. Uh, if you followed anything in the news, and I imagine y'all have Twittered it to death or something like this, but what you keep hearing about is white supremacy. The president is asked about this literally almost every time he talks to a reporter. Or you hear about the fact that all people are white and they have, that are white people have white privilege and uh, therefore are oppressors and all this kind of stuff. Wow, interesting stuff. It's uh, one of the cults we deal with over time is called the the Christian identity cults up in northern Idaho and Montana mainly, and they're basically saying that white people are God's people because of their skin color and all other people are, are mud people. Well, this is the reverse, okay? All people of color are blessed and right and good, and all people that are white are uh, evil and oppressors. This is just going all over the place, and it's being taught by university professors who have now sent Black Lives Matters and Antifa and, and hundreds of other Marxist groups you never hear about in the media into the streets to riot and tear down. And you want to ask the question, is this really about black lives? I used to be a policeman before God called me as a missionary. And one of the most frustrating things to me is how many cops were killed in the name of justice. And two of the first people that were killed that we know about in the riots that started this last spring were, in fact, black police officers. How is that about Black Lives Matters? How is it Frederick Douglass, one of the great people in American history, if you ask me, a freed slave who became a friend of Abraham Lincoln, wrote passionately about what the Bible says about slavery and how wrong the southern you know, plantation owners were about their view of slavery. How is it that statues about Frederick Douglass have been torn down and other abolitionists who worked against slavery? If this was really about black lives, if this is really about justice for people who have been historically oppressed, why would they be tearing down people who actually helped that cause? You start to wonder, you start to ask. Well, again, I had the misfortune of going into a program where this stuff was the gospel. This is what they believed. Thomas Sowell, a very famous black economist, makes this interesting point. He says, in reference to white privilege and white you know, oppression and all this kind of stuff, is any of this true? Should people be judged for what they had nothing to do with and others excluded for what they're doing right now? So with the country being torn to shreds and promises of more violence to come, and I'm sorry for you guys, I'm sorry for my own grandkids, that y'all are having to see the country in this way. I went through this as a kid in 1968 when I was 13, and it's hard to see it going through again. There's been little incidences, but nothing quite like this. All right, so the first thing I want to look at is what does God say about justice? And the, the common word in Hebrew, I'm pronouncing it wrong, I'm sure, is mishvat. And it's all over the place. And justice is not left up as some vague thing, but it's defined very specifically in the Word of God. So it helps us understand not just this word is a vacuum in a vacuum, but what does this actually mean? How are we supposed to act this way? So, one of the things we learn about justice virtually immediately in Leviticus 19.15 is that, and this comes up over and over again, maybe hundreds of times in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, whatever you want to call it, comes up with the idea of no partiality. 
we are told often that God is no respecter of persons. And so he calls us over and over again not to be impartial. Don't show favoritism to the rich. Don't show favoritism to the poor. Don't show favoritism to your neighbor. Don't show favoritism to your strangers that walk by. We're supposed to be impartial about how we treat people, all people. That comes up over and over again. In Leviticus 24:22, we are told that mishpat should be applied to both the, the people of Israel and the strangers. So some Moabite or some other ite of some sort comes through the neighborhood. You don't treat them badly because they're not one of yours. And what cultural anthropologists call tribalism is one of the oldest human inclinations. It's part of the fall that has been so destructive. We tend to like the people who are just like us. We tend to take their word over somebody we don't know from some other place, some other caste, some other gender, some other whatever, race. Deuteronomy 1, 16 to 17 says that you must judge righteously, mishpat, between brothers. One of the saddest things to me, I was not raised a Christian. My whole family is drug addicts and drunks. You don't trust anybody. That's just pretty much the normal way everybody lives. But I come out here to work for the Christian Resource Center many, many years ago. And so I've gotten to know most of the churches through Hamilton County, at least, and a few out here in Central City. But uh, one of the saddest things to me is to watch Christian families get torn to shreds over the land. I know how much land means to the farmers. I get it. And to watch Christian families tear themselves to shreds and act like my family, where people don't talk to each other for decades, has been just sad as can be. How can Christians act like this? Well, scriptures tell us that we should be impartial we don't take one brother over the other. I can take you two situations going on right now where that kind of thing's going on. It breaks my heart. Deuteronomy 10.18 says that Mishpat defends the widow and the orphan and the stranger in your midst. One of the most, and I, I'm not a huge fan of the King James Bible, but there's a verse in the King James Bible in the prophets where it talks about the fact that the rulers and the princes and the leaders of, of, the, na- of the land who are supposed to take care of the widow, who are supposed to take care of the orphan, the most defenseless people among them. Instead, here's the King James language, they grow fat off the widow. How is it you can take from the most defenseless people in the world and take their money and steal from them who have nothing? How can you possibly be motivated? Let me give you a kind of a modern illustration of that. We go to Manila every other year in the Philippines. I have several Filipino children we adopted years ago. And so uh, the Philippines means a lot to us. For whatever reason, God put them on our hearts. And we made a pledge. I'd heard about the Philippines. I'd heard about the poverty. I had many friends that were stationed there in the 60s and 70s in the Air Force Base and the Navy Base that used to be there. I have a sister-in-law who's Filipino. She had told us it did not prepare us for what we saw. I've been back over the last 20 years many times. I know exactly what I'm going to run into, and it still hits me every time I go. The poverty is overwhelming. Just what you sense, what you see, what you smell is crushing. It's absolutely crushing. And I know it now, and it still crushes me. Well, how can you go to places like that and take their money? So we made a pledge when we first went. We're not taking a peso out of the country. We've given thousands of pesos to people at the airport because we're not going to take anything out of the country. But didn't you get people like Benny Hinn, so-called healer, so-called, you know, word faith teacher. Benny goes to Manila, and then he goes to Kampal in Uganda, which is just as poor, and then he goes to Calcutta, which is just as poor, and he takes their money so he can stay in his $25,000 a night hotel rooms. I'm serious, $25,000 a night hotel rooms. How can you go to the poorest people on this planet and take their money? This is what God nails the Israeli government for at the time, the kings and the princes and the rulers, stealing from the very poorest of the poor, no conscience, 
not mishpat. Deuteronomy 16 says that in verse 17 or 19, excuse me, patriarchy, or excuse me, partiality destroys justice. So it's not just one thing about it. It actually destroys God's version of justice, mishpat. 1 Samuel 8, 18, bribes destroy and pervert justice. <coughs> I was a cop only for three years, but I got a little taste of that life. Is there the possibility that policemen take bribes? Absolutely. Do lawyers take bribes? Yep. Do judges take bribes? All the time. Do politicians? <laughs> we got a huge controversy just the last two days across the country with high-placed officials who have been accused of taking serious money to affect the judgment of our government. It destroys mishpat, God says, if you take bribes. In Leviticus 16 and several other places in the Bible, it talks about having just weights. Well, you guys are farmers. A lot of your families are anyway. And you know when you go down here to get your grain weighed, it's harvest time right now. You go over to the co-op and you get your, your trucks weighed and all that good stuff. If you imagine, a, a, you know, one of the guys at the co-op's not quite too good. He's a new guy. Maybe you don't know him. You've known the other guys forever. And he's shorting you several hundred bushels per truck. And you may not see it because it's, it's such a big thing. But after a while, just a little bit of time, you start getting some real money involved. Um, a good thief, you'll never know. They'll have your wallet long before you ever realize it's gone. And the, uh, the reality is that people have been cheating each other and stealing from each other and lying from each other and slandering each other and doing all these things for years. And God says that mishpat is destroyed by all these things. So when the world acts like this way, it is not a just world. When we as Christians act this way, it's even worse because God has called us to mishpat. He's called us to be just people because he is just. <coughs> if you have your Bibles, <coughs> excuse me, and I guess all of you do, turn to Proverbs 21. <coughs> excuse me. Something that just jumps out to me is as far as what's going on with our political class. Proverbs 21, verse 15. Twenty-one fifteen says this, when justice or mishpat is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but a terror to evildoers. If justice is done, if mishpat is done, it is a joy to righteous people. So I've known murderers. I knew serial killers. I knew hitmen. I knew all sorts of the flower of humanity. I've been to almost every prison in Colorado. Um, you, I won't even, it'll just horrible stories about what those places are like. My point is this. Every once in a while you see one of them get away with it, and it's wrong, and you know it's wrong. Bill Ayers, very famous terrorist from the 1960s and 70s, personal friend of, pers of President Obama. Bill Ayers wrote a book. He bombed, helped bomb the Pentagon and all sorts of other, <coughs> excuse me, all sorts of other places. He killed policemen and all this kind of stuff. And he got off. And he laughs about it. He's got a book standing on the American, a picture standing on the American flag saying, guilty as hell, free as a bird. He brags about the fact that he committed these crimes. People died and he didn't get punished. So when righteousness is done, when somebody like Bill Ayers is put away for what they did, the righteous rejoice. But flip that around logically, for it's, the it's the same idea. When justice is not done, it is a terror to the righteous and a joy 
to the evil. Guys, there are people in high places, in high places in political parties, cheering on the riots as I speak. Talking about how good it is and how righteous it is for people to loot stores, to hurt people, to terrorize others and beat people up. We just had a guy shot in Denver last week, <coughs> unarmed. A minister was shot by an Antifa guy. Is he going to serve? I don't know. The courts in Denver all of a sudden have become, well, you know, it wasn't his fault. After all, it's the evil, white, oppressive society that caused him to do this. Therefore, we're probably not going to charge him. Seventy percent of the people arrested in Portland, for example, have been set free. No charges. You can steal. You can rape. You can do all sorts of terrible things, and the government is not doing anything about it. At least the local governments aren't. And people are getting scared. When I spoke at the churches here this summer, I had so many people come up and afterwards and say, Bill, do you think we're going to have a civil war? I don't know what to tell you at this point. I know that my father's in charge, so I'm not going to worry about it one way or the other. But I don't know. Things are going badly in a lot of different places. We'll see what happens, Lord willing. All right, so let me compare. I just gave you a little sampling of God's view of justice. Let me compare this with Marxist justice. Um, Karl Marx is really a, a bad guy on so many levels. On a personal level, he's a disaster. He never worked, literally never worked a job in his life. Begged off his rich friends and stuff like this and his family. But Marx had two understandings of the world, of two groups of people on the planet. There's the proletariat, excuse me, there's the proletariat, the workers, and there's the bourgeoisie. These are the landowners. These are the farmers. These are the shop owners. These are the, the royalty or the church leaders or whatever. There is no such thing as a good bourgeoisie. There is no such thing as a bad proletariat. So this is why prisons have been emptied out. Even murderers have gotten out on the street in the last six months because they didn't do what they did because they're evil. They did what they did because of the oppressive white society. So everything is blamed because the people are pure. Everything's blamed on the institutions. All right. So you cannot be a good farmer. You cannot be a decent person who's a landowner of any sort or a person who runs a shop honestly. That, by definition, you stole to have that. If you have a farm, you stole it. If you have a shop, you stole it. From who? From the proletariat. That's Marx's classic language. You don't hear people using those words anymore. We have a new version of this. And it's sometimes called cultural theory, where, like I said, I was studying, or critical theory. And then we get a subversion of it called critical race theory. So let me just help, help you understand critical theory now. All right? And this is uh, it's so hard for me to imagine that this is busted out of, this, out of the academy and out of the universities in the last 15 years, but it really has. So now we have two different groups of people. We have the oppressors and the oppressed. By definition, no oppressed person is a bad person. No crime they commit, sh they should not be held responsible for anything because they're oppressed. No oppressor, by, again, by definition, is a bad person. There's no way to make up for it unless you become a Marxist or get woke or in wokenment. Or there's all sorts of language that get converged. All these words mean the same thing. And to watch Christian churches roll over for this, we were in the Philippines last summer when the Southern Baptist Convention accepted critical race theory and intersectionality, which I'll tell you about in a minute. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, no. I called up my professor at Southern Seminary and just said, is this really what's going on with you guys in the Southern Baptist Convention? I'm not Southern Baptist, but this is so wrong. He says, I know, it's a, it's a mess. All right, so who are these oppressed and oppressors? Well, by definition, all white people. It doesn't matter if your family wasn't here. My family came over after World War I, roughly 60 years past after slavery was outlawed. 
but we're oppressors. Why? Because we have white privilege. Why do we have that? Because we grew up in a white society designed by white oppressive people to put down people of color. That's the rhetoric that's used constantly. That's the way they talk. Is any of this true? As Thomas Sowell says, why are people being held responsible for something they did not have anything to do with and other people are raping and murder and doing stuff and they're not responsible? Really? Is that how the justice works now? Well, that's what we're told. So Marxist justice is based on the idea. In fact, if you go to where I was at DU, there's this Iliff Seminary. Every um, Methodist seminary is right next to a Methodist school, like Duke and SMU have seminaries. Denver University has Iliff Seminary. So I had to take two classes there. And you walk in, and you can see amongst many of the teachers, you see a picture of Jesus on the wall. Wow. Who knew? It's much more likely to have witches and Buddhists lead the Christian theology classes at Iliff than it is to have somebody calling themselves Christian. Anyways, here's a picture of Jesus. Only it's a different picture than most you've ever seen. He's got a red bandana, and he's holding an AK-47 AK so he can shoot the landowners. That's who Jesus is. That's the model of Jesus that's being put out in this whole enlightened bunch, okay? It's very big on something called the liberation theology in the Catholic Church about 60, 70 years ago. Jesus is here to kill the landowners in Venezuela or Colombia or Bolivia or someplace like this because the landowners are evil by definition. They're part of the oppressor class, and the oppressed, the people, um, are free to murder. It doesn't matter. That's what they believe. So we do have a Jesus available in this group like many other cults. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, <coughs> so if you just listen to Antifa or Black Lives Matter people right now, Black Lives Matter is openly Marxist, so is Antifa, but they literally talk about how it's okay. The guy that was killed in Denver last week, some of the Antifa people were talking to the media afterwards, and they bragged about just one more bleepity bleeper oppressor gone. No big deal. Ain't no thing to kill. That's how they talk about it openly. They're not hiding this stuff. <coughs> All right. So now let me give you a quick little tiny history lesson. Sorry to bore the snot out of you, but you need to understand where this came from. When World War I, right prior to World War I, Hitler was leading in Germany and Mussolini had taken over in, in Italy. And they were also socialists. That's the word national socialist. Nazi means National Socialist Workers Party. The irony of people calling everybody else Nazis, except they're the socialists, they're the Nazis. Anyways, um, there was a group of thinkers in Germany at the time, uh, names you won't remember, uh, Adorno and Hornack and Marcuse and all these guys, and they were really frustrated by the fact that Hitler had won. He's a socialist, we're socialists too, but we're national, excuse me, Hitler's a national socialist and we're world socialists. Marxist was a world socialist. No borders, you hear talk like this out of these people. No borders, everybody's the same, blah, 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 blah. Hitler didn't go for that. He went for a nationalized version, a German socialism. He appealed to the pride of the people, and he won. Talk about das Volk and das Land and das Blood, the people, the land, the blood, Germany. And so they're sitting around wondering what happened. So all these guys were forced to flee because they were world socialists. So they come to the United States for a while, and we give them university positions because we're idiots here. And then after the war, they go back to Frankfurt, Germany. So this is often called the Frankfurt School. And they basically said, you know what Hitler and Mussolini did was smart. They worked in the culture. So we need to change Marxism, not try a violent overthrow everywhere we go, but instead try what they call, quote, long march through the institutions. We're going to introduce Marxism into nursing, into politics, into the church, 
into everything you can think of. One of the guys I went to DU, his doctoral dissertation, this is a doctoral dissertation, was on Marxism and the Texas Rangers baseball team. And I heard this and I go, what? Well, I, I hadn't really understood the bigger picture yet, that Marxism has to be introduced to literally everything. So this hits the church, and like I mentioned liberation theology in the Catholic Church 60 years ago, hits in the black churches with James Cone and all sorts of other guys you've never heard about. You now have queer theology, you have uh, womenist theology, you have uh, you know left-handed people who pick their nose theology. You have just about a, a variation of everything, and it's all cool with them. Because all it is is Marxism as applied to a particular area. So critical theory is about understanding that there's two classes of people, and these people are always evil, and these people are always good, okay? Critical race theory is applying this purely as a human phenomenon. They don't do this, this, this version is not available in the Philippines. It's not available in China and other places around the world, but it's very much a part of American thinking because America has a long history of problems with race because of slavery and other things like that. So it's now a wedge tool. They could care less about black people. If they really cared about black people, they would go and protest and stomp down on, say, Planned Parenthood, who slaughters back black people at a horrible rate, or the gangs in Chicago or other places like this where black people, more people are killed in one weekend in Chicago than cops have killed black people in 10 years at a minimum. Nobody protests that. It's amazing how interested it is because this has nothing to do with black people. This has everything to do with power and taking power from the government and putting up a new government, a Marxist government. So let me discuss intersectionality for a second. Here's how you get measured, whether you're an oppressor or oppressed. You get points, okay? If you are a white male, you have two of the worst oppressor points. You are a bad person by definition. If you're a Christian, oh my gosh, it's even worse now. And if you're straight, if you're not open to homosexuality, you are the worst possible person to ever walk this planet. You cannot possibly be forgiven for this. There is no grace and mercy. You can only become woke. You become a good little Marxist, like it's happened with the SBC, like it's happened with Campus Crusade, like it's happened at InterVarsity and so many other places across this country. If you become woke, then you can be forgiven for your four great sins. Now, conversely, if you're a black woman, you have two oppressed points. You are scoring very high on the thing. If you're a black woman who's a lesbian, it's even more better. And if you're a pagan, you worship nature instead of God. Well, you got it all. You got the, the whole big picture. You are the most oppressed person on the planet. So literally, this, and this is, again, this discussion has been going on at the university level for years, and now it's blown into the culture. Well, you can't, aren't allowed to speak because you're an oppressor. How do you know I'm an oppressor? Well, you have white skin. You're male. Oh, and you have to be a Christian too? <laughs> Get lost. Your voice is irrelevant to us. But again, the person who put the 1619 Project, which is being taught in schools all over the country, President Trump just signed an order last month cutting this nonsense out, in, at least in the public schools. But she's a black female pagan. The three women who founded Black Lives Matters are black female lesbian pagans. They got all the good points. So their voices are authentic. Their voices are good. Their voices are real. And anybody else's voices is illegitimate and bad. Welcome to the brave new world we're now living in. Again, this has nothing to do with black skin or anything like this. This is all about power. And ra critical race theory is just a wedge being used, a tool being used for us right now. So what are we to say as believers in this thing? How do these Christians respond to this? God cares about justice. We looked at that just a tiny little bit. If you do a word study on Mishvat, you'll find so many verses. God cares about justice. We know that God is loving. We know that he's love. 
when he was John. But guys, he's also just. You cannot separate the two. You cannot be an unjust person and, and talk about love. You cannot be a loving person who doesn't address justice. They're both required. <coughs> so Abraham asked the question, shall not the God of the universe do what is right? Well, I think he has already. That's what the cross is all about. The cross is God's love and his mercy. You've heard sermons like this before. I'm just doing it in a different context. It's about God's love and mercy, but it's also about God's justice. Nobody gets away with anything. Nobody, including us as believers, gets away with anything. You're either one of those whom Jesus has forgiven, and your sins are covered in the atonement, and what Jesus did for us, or you're not. But either way, justice has been applied. Nobody gets away with rape, the sex slave trade, and all these terrible things that have gone on throughout world history, God sees everywhere. I'm reading the Proverbs this morning. Even hell itself is laid open before God, Proverbs 15. He sees everything, and he's going to bring justice. And it's not going to be pretty if you don't know Jesus. It's going to be pretty horrible, in fact. But even for those of us as believers, we need to be thankful because God's justice has been put on us, but because of Jesus, we've been forgiven. And not because we're good people. Not because we're nice Nebraska folks or nice Cornhusker fans or anything like that. No, we've been forgiven because of what Jesus did. And that's always critical. Let me point out a few differences about how God sees justice versus how man does. First thing is that God's justice is universal. Remember I told you Plato and Socrates were trying to find justice? Well, philosophers have been finding that, fighting over that for 2,300 years now. But in the word of God, we already know what justice is. You can't be partial. You can't cheat people. You can't lie to people. That's what God's justice is about. It's very practical at this point. God's justice applies to all people at all times. And if you watch the Old Testament, you read it much, what do you see? God's going to judge the nation of Babylon or he's going to judge, you know, Tyre or all these other nations. And, and Israel starts acting like them. He's going to judge Israel too, which it did constantly. You read in Jeremiah about how the fact that the Jews have now started to do what their Canaanite friends are doing. They're slaughtering their own children to get a good corn crop. Does God say that's okay because they happen to be Jews? Uh-uh. Judgment's coming. That's what Jeremiah talked about. So God's justice is universal. Is man's justice universal? Literally never. Usually the way we work this as individual Christians, we'll say something like, well, Lord, bring justice on that bad guy over there, and, and mercy for me, please. Let's be honest. We don't want to face God's justice, but we do want some bad people who have hurt us to face God's justice. We're partial right off the bat. We're partial towards our families. We're partial towards people in our identity group, whatever it may be. We're partial towards other football players as opposed to the band. I mean, just life is full of this kind of stuff. And God says not to be partial. And it applies in every situation. That's why it's universal. It always applies at all times. Murder is not allowable here and, and illegal over there. It's always wrong. It's always wrong to rape. It's always wrong to steal and lie. Because God's justice is universal. Mankind's is not. You see it right now. <coughs> you literally see people, this is what I was talking about in Proverbs 21, you literally see people cheering on the death. Academics, professors cheering on the slaughter of people in the streets. A high-placed Democratic official in Colorado last week just talked about, I, won't, I will cut out the language he used, but when that guy was killed, when the Trump supporter was killed by Antifa on the streets there in Denver, 
this guy comes out, highly placed guy, and these quotes come out of his Twitter feed, and all of a sudden you realize that this guy's been calling for guillotines for all the people who oppose them. Wow. Such peaceful language. God's justice is universal. It applies to everybody. Ours is rarely. Secondly, God's justice, he's omniscient. That means he knows everything. Any of you want to make that claim? You can't make that claim to your sophomores. That's what the word sophomore means. Why school? They think they know everything and they don't. Okay? The faculty gets that one. Okay. Well, the point being is that God knows the hearts of all of us. He sees the heart and the mind. He knows the intention of everything we do. Okay? Can we possibly say that about anybody? I teach ethics. I'm talking about this thing called egoism where everybody always does the most selfish thing they can ever do. That's a whole philosophical theory. How do you know that? How can you possibly know what all people are doing? So how can you possibly know that there's no such thing as a good white person and no such thing as a bad black person? How can you know that? Do you know everybody's heart and mind? Really? How'd you pull that off? What angle, how high of a mountain did you have to have to know everybody's thoughts? But God does. So by definition, we are never going to know. One of my frustrations as a cop is very rarely, if you ever serve on a jury someday for a murder trial, very rarely, very rarely will you see all the evidence. Lawyers spend all their time excluding what sits in front of the jury. And you'll ask somebody who commits, who, you know, acquits a murderer, and you know out on the outside that they had the gun, they had the, the money from the bank job, there were all this kind of stuff, and you never saw that on the jury. And you're like, how could you not convict them? And like, we didn't see any of that. Welcome to the American legal system. It frustrates me sometimes. Well, the point is, nothing slips by God. He knows everything. He knows what drives us. Third, God's justice is retributive. What do I mean by that? The scripture says God is not a teddy bear. He's not uh, a soft, cuddly little thing. He's the God of the universe. He made you, and he can take you right out. So the fear of the Lord over and over again in the Tanakh is the, is the, the understanding for wisdom starts right there. God will bring justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Old Testament and New Testament both. God is a serious judge. And we don't like to talk about that as Americans. We don't like to talk about hell. That's pretty much disappeared from churches for the last 20 years. But my point is not about hell right now. My point is that you must take seriously that God takes this stuff seriously. So if God calls himself a no respecter of persons, how is it we can get by and think that we can respect persons in the sense of, I like you because you're the right skin color, I hate you because you're the wrong skin color? Guys, if racism is one of your problems this morning, you need to confess. You need to throw that right before the Lord. If you only talk to the people who can benefit you, if you only talk to people who have money, and you don't want to hang around people who don't, or maybe they're not so cruel as your group is or something like this, you're showing partiality by definition. God does not do that. And he wants us not to do that as well. This is the day we repent of this. <coughs> well, God hates sin. Therefore, he hates injustice. If somebody from the wrong color, I guess I can go all sorts of different directions, can I? Somebody from the wrong color is getting hurt in front of you. What are you going to do? Oh, be fed and warm. I'll pray for you. Really? Is that all that God calls us to do? 
I think we need to be people who model God's justice, not the nonsense going on in the streets, not Marxist justice. That's not justice at all. We need to be people as believers who model God's justice because God cares about this. And if he cares about this, we need to be in the business to care about it as well. I'll just end with this thought. You know, um, I've been a missionary for a long time, over 30 years. I see the same problems wherever I go. When I go to Asia, when I got to Israel, when I've gone to other parts of the world. Human beings are wonderfully consistent wherever we come from. We screw things up. <laughs> doesn't matter what culture you come from, what race you are, anything like that. We have an amazing ability to screw up wherever we go. We do the exact same behaviors. And God calls us to repent. And he tells us how much he loves us. And he keeps bringing you back. He keeps calling you back. He keeps, keeps, come on. And we lose sight of that. And sometimes we don't take that seriously. Yeah, I didn't go to a nice Christian school. By the time I'm in ninth grade, I'm on my way to several arrests, several DUIs, drugs, all sorts of fun stuff. My family's been destroyed multiple times over. I would have been the last person any of you probably would have wanted to hang out with if you're a nice Christian person. I'm not even blaming you for that. I was not the nicest person to hang out with. But my whole family was like that. And if, in fact, you said you write me off because I'm not one of the good people that you want to hang with, then you're basically saying God doesn't love him. And I perfectly understood that. Why would God love somebody like me? If there was a God to me, he was some old guy with a club. I didn't think about it because I was too busy partying. But the old guy with the club, every time I got busted by the cops, wham. Every time my stepdad knocked me around, guess what? That was this God out there getting me back for all the things I hadn't been caught at yet. I believed in justice in a twisted sort of way. When I read Romans 5.8 for the first time in the middle of senior high school, God demonstrates his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. I was literally shocked. I was high that whole weekend, and that sobered me up. Boom. All of a sudden, I'm like, what? God loves the ungodly? How is that possible? How could he possibly love somebody like me? Changed my life. Here I am 47 years later, been in ministry most of my life. Not because I'm a good person. I'm not. But because God's love and mercy and his justice was given to me as a gift. We need to be people who give that to others. We need to talk to people who are not loved, to people who are being treated badly, and we need to share this message about God's love and his justice and his mercy. Pray with me now. Father, thanks again for your love, your mercy, and your justice and all these things you give us. And I pray for all these students, Father, that you can reach the world through middle schoolers as well as anybody else. Father, thank you for them. Help them to honor you wherever they are. Help them to spread the news of your gospel, Father, to change this real lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all. All right, please uh, 